0: You're listening to The Verso Podcast. Welcome to The Verso Podcast. This episode features a conversation with the scholar Alex Vitale, recorded as we walked through the streets of Williamsburg, Brooklyn. We discuss his new book, The End of Policing, a concrete, thorough, and powerful analysis of policing in the United States, and a direct call to action towards alternatives. Throughout the industrialization and post industrialization of the 20th century, this area of Brooklyn was home to a diverse working class population and much of New York City's manufacturing plants and jobs. Of course, it is now one of the most dramatic examples of gentrification and stages our conversation in an environment that has borne out neoliberal urban policy along racial and class lines. As the conversation concerned urban life, we felt it essential to record in a city soundscape that reflected many of the concerns raised in the end of policing. As you will hear, we are accompanied by what we call the jazz of industrial city life. Over the last several decades, Alex Vitale has worked firsthand in a variety of areas of urban life. He is currently a professor of sociology at Brooklyn College and is a faculty union officer there. He is a current member of the New York State Advisory Committee of the United States Civil Rights Commission, a member of the Police Reform Organizing Project, and serves on the advisory board of the New York City Policing Roundtable. He has written extensively on police policy throughout his career, his work appearing often in The Nation, Al Jazeera, and a plethora of sociological and political academic journals. This episode is punctuated by excerpts read by the author. We began our discussion when I asked him to give us an overview of the structural and ideological problems that have produced the contemporary crisis of policing in the United States.
1: Well, I think, you know, we have to go back to this understanding about the rise of, of neoliberalism and the politics of austerity. And cities in the United States uh, were facing a major crisis in the 1970s. The government at the central level was divesting from cities, was subsidizing suburbanization through home loans and the building of interstate highways. and These cities were trying to compete on a more global basis as more and more of the functions that they were performing could be performed in other parts of the world, often at lower cost. And so many city leaders were left with difficult choices about how to articulate themselves with the global economy, and none of them wanted to look like Detroit, which was not able to figure out how to integrate itself in the new economy and basically became abandoned and certainly abandoned by capital. What cities did was that they decided to compete with each other to try to grab as much of the high finance business that was really what the United States' major economic comparative advantage was. And they did this through massive subsidies to, to banks, to exchanges, to certain kinds of corporate headquarters and business services, real estate, insurance, et cetera. And in order they felt that in order to hold on to that business, they had to put everything they had into subsidizing them. Now the problem is that those subsidies where successful, created massive economic polarization because those parts of the economy don't produce middle class jobs. They produce a fairly small number of highly paid jobs and then a kind of trickle down to a large service sector of very low paid jobs. And so my argument in my book, City of Disorder, is that governments have got to do a better job of balancing the need to keep those businesses with a broader forms of economic development that produce middle-class jobs and b more aggressive tax policies that allow cities to not accelerate inequality but to try to reduce the impacts of this inequality. Now this isn't a, a kind of radical uh, socialist revisioning of the society. This is kind of very straightforward Keynesian economics. Mm-hmm. But that seems incredibly radical in this moment. Right. That there's no space to have this kind of a conversation. That the idea of a business subsidy government is sort of unassailable. And then what's left are a few crumbs to pass around. And the result of all this is increases in mass homelessness, unfunded needs for you know medical services mental health services no youth programs no real pathways for lots of young people to move into productive jobs that pay a family wage etc and so we're left with police to manage the symptoms of all that inequality and ultimately in the end of policing the argument is that until we go back to addressing those problems all this technocratic tinkering with the forms of policing are A, not gonna work, and B, are not gonna address any of the actual problems.
0: Where we are right now, Williamsburg, Brooklyn, is an excellent example of what you're talking about, where it was a diverse and sort of low-income working class neighborhood for a very long time. 2005, there was a sort of massive rezoning of Williamsburg, and what ended up happening was that all of these developers who the city was courting to invest their speculative capital were chomping at the bit to, to build in Williamsburg. And one of the provisions for building was that 30% of the housing developments would be affordable. But instead of taking those incentives, they just decided to not build them or build them elsewhere. And so instead of this sort of rising tide neoliberal idea where investment sort of brings everybody up, it
1: just produces displacement. Yeah, so we have you know, economic growth in New York at the aggregate level, but we also have record levels of homelessness, right. childhood poverty. And so we've not figured out a way to balance this growth with the broader needs of the society and partly that's because ideologically, we believe that the market has to sort these things out. But the market is incapable of providing affordable housing to a deeply polarized economic wage structure. So there's just no way the market is going to accommodate the large numbers of people who are employed, but employed in low wage service work. And so the state either has to step in and address the wage disparities through fight for 15 kinds of measures, and rising wages for public sector workers who make up a huge part of the middle class or they have to get themselves back into the business of building low-income affordable housing because we cannot rely on the developers to do this work for us. No amount of market rate housing construction is ever going to produce enough trickle-down that it's going to get homeless people out of shelters. So if we understand that there's a set of principles that could guide us in a more humane and effective way and yet we do the opposite we have to ask ourselves well why the disconnect and it really comes down to these larger ideological questions a lot of which have to do with the sort of fundamental politics of the united states and especially urban places and that is that the last 40 years is characterized by a profound bipartisan consensus in favor of austerity, but a kind of ideological austerity, which is that it often doesn't ultimately save very much money, but it is couched in terms that blame the poor for being poor and valorize the rich for already being rich. And so that we've reorganized our public politics to say that the only valid expenses for city government are to subsidize the very richest people or to punitively manage the poorest and most dispossessed. And this is really what we often refer to as the neoliberal project. This redistribu- redistribution of wealth up the chain and the intensification of punitive social control measures to help manage those who've been left behind. And are quite understandably angry about it. So this is a kind of simplistic analysis, but what we're looking at are broad ideological trends that are shaping these policies on the ground. And we can see very clearly the skewing of the tax code, the intensification of the subsidies, and we're talking concretely at the urban level all across the country at the same time that we've seen the rise of mass incarceration and the explosive growth in policing. When people turn to the police as a tool for community empowerment, community safety, community liberation, I think that there's a profound misunderstanding of the nature of the institution that they're asking to help them. And if anything, I hope this book will help give people some tools, some ideas about how to demand improvements in their communities without simply relying on the police. That we can ask government to solve our problems using all kinds of other resources. And we don't have to accept this idea that the only thing government can give us is more police. More than anything, however, what we really need is to rethink the role of police in society. The origins and function of police are intimately tied to the management of inequalities of race and class. The suppression of workers and the tight surveillance and micromanagement of black and brown lives have always been at the center of policing. Any police reform strategy that fails to address this reality is doomed to fail. We must stop looking to procedural reforms and critically evaluate the substantive outcomes of policing, we must constantly reevaluate what the police are asked to do and what impact policing has on the lives of the police. A kindler, gentler, and more diverse war on the poor is still a war on the poor. As Chris Hayes points out, organizing policing around collections of fees and fines to fund local government undermines the basic ideals of democracy. You write that, quote, police represent the point of contact
0: between the coercive state and citizens, end quote. And you go on to illustrate this fact chapter by chapter. Uh, the school to prison pipeline, how the state handles people with mental illness and homelessness, the regulation of sex work, the so-called war on drugs, uh, gang suppression, the enforcement of borders, and the suppression of political opposition. The book presents a constant assertion that there are alternative methods to explore that reevaluate the current fundamentally punitive manifestation of the criminal justice system. Um, Are you frustrated with the general discussions surrounding police reform and that reform itself is
1: treated as an alternative when it is demonstrably not? Well, I hope that one of the consequences of this book is that it does create some waves within the police scholarship community and I actually have a a blog on the Verso website about this, a blog post where I talk about the fact that too much academic research into policing fails to ask these fundamental questions about justice and the real outcomes of policing and gets caught up in this micro-assessment of procedures. So I'm hoping that this will inspire some researchers out there to take a look at the criminal the institutions within the criminal justice system not from a perspective of enhancing efficiency and and reproducing uh, you know public confidence in these institutions but in really fundamentally questioning their role in society and whether or not they're producing social, racial, economic justice. So
0: yeah, I, there's, a th- there's a through line addressing how ineffective it is to simply, as you put it, tinker with one element of this process while not addressing the whole systemic picture. Who do you want reading it? Do you want this to be read by you know, people drafting policy?
1: Do you want a sort of a, a cultural shift? Do you want a little bit of both? Yeah, that's a great question. I think that I wrote this book so that it would be as accessible as I could make it to a a popular audience. And maybe if, if there's any one target audience, it's people who feel like they're part of a movement to do something about policing, but they're maybe not sure about what they should be asking for. So you mentioned, you know, that we can't just fix one little piece of this. Uh, l- look at what's happening with body cameras. So, we had these uh, cases in Baltimore recently where officers were staging the confiscation of drugs. Now, maybe they were just reenacting what had actually happened. Maybe they were planting evidence. We don't know. But either way, what we're seeing is that the body camera is not being used as a tool of accountability, it's being used as a tool of evidence gathering. It's being used to give the police more power. Whether they use it properly or improperly, it's expanding police power and it's not being used for accountability very often because what's happening is police departments are asserting that they have control over the footage and if they don't want to give it to people, they don't give it to people. So, if I am involved in a police interaction that I feel like has been abusive in some way, in most departments, I can't get the footage unless I sue them and wait till we get to the discovery phase of a trial and then maybe I'll get it. And so, how is that enhancing transparency or public confidence in the police? It's not. So uh, what I've argued for in some op-eds is that, in fact, we should take control of the footage away from the police who have an inherent conflict of interest, that it should be under the control of an independent agency, and that there should be clear rules for having access to it. If I'm in it, I should be able to see it without legal procedures or whatever. If I just swear out I'm in it and they can see I'm in it, I should be able to see it. And if someone files a complaint with the CCRB, then the CCRB should be able to see it. And if the police swear out a complaint against someone and they say there's body camera footage, well then they should be able to see the footage along with the defense. And they should be able to see it at the same time. What happens here in New York and in a lot of places is that the discovery process is dragged out so that the person doesn't get to see the footage until the day before the trial, which is a way of trying to force people to make plea bargains that don't really serve their interests because they can't see what evidence the police really have against them.
0: And it also minimizes the amount of time. There's sort of like a, almost like a ripening quality to public dissent. If footage is released near the time of an incident, then a case will sort of be drawn out so that the hearings are as far away as possible from the incident to sort of let things die down, or otherwise, as you just pointed out, it's withheld
1: until the last possible moment. And the converse of this is also in play, which is that when the, when the video is exculpatory of the police, it gets released right away. right away. Or if the video shows the police doing something heroic, it gets shown right away so that if it serves a kind of PR agenda for the police department there's no delay in getting it released. All of a sudden there aren't any privacy concerns etc. It's only when it places the police in an unfavorable light that we get this logjam of getting to see the footage. Of course it's not an accident that this footage is being misused often in drug cases and the solution to that is not tighter rules on body cameras, or even just rethinking the whole use of body cameras, but it's like, why are we prosecuting a war on drugs in the first place? The war on drugs has been a total failure. We spend
0: about 50 billion a year, I
1: think. We've been doing it for 40 years, and drugs are cheaper, easier to get, and of higher quality than they've ever been. You can't really come up with any measure that would show any success in the war on drugs in terms of public health or reduced access, and yet we persist in this criminalization of millions of people. So my argument is is that we need to, instead of tinkering with how the war on drugs is implemented, we've got to put front and center a total questioning of this approach, and that until we do that, we're not gonna get meaningful relief. There's a
0: a section in the book um, when you're discussing people with mental illness and their access to treatment. There's one really gripping line you have where you illustrate how in many programs, not only are the police the gateway to treatment, but that sometimes people have to commit a crime in order to even have access to treatment. And I think that really illustrates this sort of invisible functional role that police play in our lives, that they really are the gateway not only to protection and sort of concerns of safety and order, but also concerns of of mental health and sort of social stability. They have this widening influence on our access to state programs.
1: You know, we're so caught up in an ideology of punitiveness and that this goes with this whole neoliberal restructuring. That if we accept that people are poor because of market forces, then the solution would be some intervention with those market forces. But if we are dead set against market interventions, then we need an explanation of poverty and disorder and alienation and racism that doesn't rely on market forces in any way. And so what we have developed, and it's not a new idea, but it's become so pervasive, is that you know the poor are poor because of their own personal and moral failings. Right. And once we go down that road, then the solution to those problems are interventions that are designed to force people into behaviors because they're not capable of making their own informed rational decisions. So we need punitive state interventions to change people's behavior. And that logic drives a huge amount of what government does now, even when it appears to be trying to help people so that The delivery of social services is not only often funneled through the criminal justice system, but the actual look of those services is often incredibly punitive. Our entire criminal justice system has become a gigantic revenge factory. Three strikes laws, sex offender registries, the death penalty, and abolishing parole are all about retribution, not safety whole segments of our society have been deemed always already guilty. This is not justice, it is oppression. Real justice would look to restore people and communities, to rebuild trust and social cohesion, to offer people a way forward, to reduce the social forces that drive crime, and to treat both victims and perpetrators as full human beings. Our police and larger criminal justice system not only fail at this but rarely see it as even related to their mission. There have been a number of uh, research monographs that have looked at homeless social services, social services for people involved in sex work, social services for people who are drug involved and what they find is that the treatment regimes that are being offered mirror this kind of personal responsibility mantra, so that instead of providing housing, providing pathways to stable employment, they provide a lot of moral chastisement about you've got to get your act together, you've got to get with the program, you've got to take responsibility for all your shortcomings. And so treatment has turned into just an extension of these punitive systems of micromanaging the lives of the poor and often are completely unsuccessful and only serve to highlight the, or accentuate this churning of people from emergency rooms to homeless shelters to jails to social services that don't really help them. All right. I think it's a, it's fair to
0: say too that this sort of what you call, what you just described, moral absolutism in the book, um, this serves as the sort of backbone of how the police function, that um, they're the good guys and the
1: evildoers. It's essential for these systems, right, to cut off any explanation that implies that there are solutions that have to do with, you know, fundamental economic and social arrangements in the society. And so, you know, at the international level, you see George Bush and the evildoers. This was a way of cutting off any discussion of the U.S.'s own role in producing this kind of uh, fanatical, violent, militaristic backlash against us. It completely obliterates our memory of foreign policy, our role in the Middle East, et cetera. You you definitely draw a lot
0: of parallels between the strategies of foreign
1: occupation and the strategies of domestic police. I mean, the history of, of American policing has always happened in dialogue with colonialism, so the creation of the first state police force in Pennsylvania was very much influenced by the U.S. colonial occupation of the Philippines, Throughout the 20th century, we have both trained colonial governments and their police forces and gotten ideas about counterinsurgency and militarized policing from them. And it's a very sordid history. I think it's at its worst if we look at uh, Central America and Latin America, where our interventions have helped to perpetuate despotic and murderous regimes. Our training is tied to the work of death squads and uh, really, really horrible uh, human rights abuses. One of the things that motivated me to write this book was my kind of uh, incredulity that folks in low-income communities, communities of color who who were experiencing this aggressive and invasive policing the most were still calling on police to solve their problems. And I understood that part of that was because those were the only options that were being made available to them. But I felt that it profoundly misunderstood the historical, functional nature of these institutions, of police forces. So I took it upon myself to look at the research and the history of these institutions to think about not just the kind of liberal discussion of you know civilian policing and policing by consent, but to look really What did the police spend their time doing? What were the challenges that drove the creation of these police forces? And what I found was that basically the formation of police forces was tied to three major institutions of inequality in the 19th century. And these are colonialism, the suppression of workers' movements, and of course, slavery. Now sometimes we hear someone will talk about one aspect or the other as the whole story and what I tried to do was to give as much of a concrete history of this process as possible and to show that there's no one explanation for the whole thing but that functionally we can understand policing is basically an institution whose primary mission is the creation and reproduction of profound inequalities often along racial lines, but not always, also along class lines, also along xenophobic lines, and that there's very little to point to in terms of police being an institution to truly promote community development, community safety in poor communities in particular.
0: When I was reading about Williamsburg and sort of examining what's happened here over the last 15, 20 years, One thing uh, I found really striking was the gentrification of juries has has had a huge effect on the criminal justice system because now you have the sort of the population of juries, there's almost like a phase shift Mm -hmm. where with gentrification comes a sort of more of a reliance and an identification with and a belief in the legitimacy of police and so convictions are going up because of these juries who are more trusting of police.
1: Well, one of the things we have that's going on here in New York is that uh, we have moved towards a gang suppression form of policing to deal with youth violence. And in some parts of the city, there remains some skepticism about broad conspiracy charges with very little concrete physical evidence. And this is especially true in the Bronx where police credibility is at a pretty low level among juries there. The Bronx is largely ungentrified. So the police and the DA's office in the Bronx have tried to solve that problem by partnering with the Southern District of the federal system, the New York Southern District, and bringing cases in federal court where the jury pool includes Westchester County and Manhattan and not just the Bronx and they feel that they're more able to get convictions with shaky evidence by having a more conservative jury pool. You didn't see that one coming, did you?
0: (laughs) You very much stay away from sort of classic leftist lexicon. You're not using this sort of hip, Jargon. No, no, but I mean that yes, as, a, yes, uh, yes. as really functionally yeah. important that you're not using the sort of classic hip jargon of modern Marxist critique. Yep. And though you mentioned like you're very influenced by David Harvey, it's all very founded in material conditions and surveys, studies, and how social programs would actually work and how the police actually work. Do you think that? we can formulate some sort of argument in popular dialogue in popular discussions of these issues that can start the shift like what 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 can we do to address this ideological position that we're, we're coming up against cuz it doesn't seem like yeah, any well, amount of facts <laughs> i know i know that's like a laugh- yeah. it is laughable but it also seems
1: to be kind of true right so my the audience for this is not you know uh right-wing supporters of the police because they're not going to be reached by this analysis Mm -hmm. my goal is to instead try to reach well-meaning people and get them to deepen their analysis and deepen the agenda of change that they're calling for and to see how this problem can't be solved unless we address these deeper underlying problems. And so I don't think it's helpful to engage in a kind of deep speculative ideological investigation if that's your target audience. I think there is a role for those deep questions and I, I like to think that I stay abreast of them and I'm influenced by them, but the general public can't access that material. It's written in a language that assumes a previous engagement with huge amounts of conversation. A lot of that jargon is essentially a kind of shorthand that allows for a kind of denser, more efficient conversation, but it has the function of excluding people who are not conversant in that shorthand, and that is exactly what I wanted to try to avoid in this book, was shorthand that excluded people from the conversation. And there's no reason why you can't have these complicated ideas discussed in a language that people can grasp. You just have to get rid of the shorthand. You have to take the time to tell people what you mean and to try to do that in an efficient way so that you're not wasting their time.
0: Yeah, you, you, you I think you achieve this sort of radical play this radical move without the sort of vestiges and, and rituals of radicalism,
1: if that makes sense. I was pretty, you know, alienated at different points in my own political development by a kind of sectarian leftist rhetoric that I found completely out of touch with with my own upbringing as a worker you know and as a a kind of middle-class person who grew up in the south Mm -hmm. and i was like who do you think is going to read this can relate to this certainly not anyone that i have ever known and so i have always tried to steer away from um that kind of sectarian language and then i think that translated into also a suspicion about academic jargon Um, because they that those choices have political consequences so you know ultimately the audience of the book is hopefully people who will engage these issues on the ground in real struggles for social justice and that this will help them to broaden their analysis strengthen their agenda give them data examples that they can use rhetorically and practically to advance this work and I think ultimately if we're going to change the culture you know that process of engaging in collective struggle is really important because it's not enough to go around saying abolish the police Uh as just an empty rhetoric The actual work of producing alternatives, of mobilizing the political power to rein in the scope of policing, this is going to hopefully lead to a new kind of politics, hopefully a kind of majoritarian politics, that sees the state in a different way, that sees the police in a different way, and ultimately that's where we need to be headed. It's not enough to throw a couple of police officers in jail for shooting an unarmed black man. That's not gonna bring real change for communities that are affected by abusive policing. It's not gonna create racial justice. It's just going to continue a cycle of finger pointing. U.S. culture is organized around exploitation, greed, white privilege, and resentment. These are derived in large part from our economic system, but even profound economic changes do not automatically produce positive cultural changes, at least not overnight. Cultural norms also impede efforts to change these systems. What is needed is a process in which the very struggle for change produces cultural shifts. By working together for social, economic, and racial justice, we must also create new value systems that call into question the greed and indifference that allow the current system to flourish. We must take care of each other in a climate of mutual respect if we hope to build a better world. One of the most positive aspects of the Black Lives Matter movement has been its embrace of differences of identity and the diversity of people engaged in leading it. We can't fight racism while embracing homophobia any more than we can fight mass incarceration by embracing a politics of punishment.
0: There's a point at which you mention how police often see these um, attempts at moving away from kind of coercive action. They see that as sort of almost like weak, or like I think you use the term like these are empty suits.
1: Yeah, yeah, empty holsters. And I think empty suits is the term I use there, but they also have an expression, empty holsters. What's happened is that, you know, police officers, have been caught up in an institutional culture that is, emphasizes a self-justification of its own importance. So that means an embracing of this punitive ideology so that they have come to believe themselves increasingly that the solution to every problem is a punitive solution.
0: This warrior mentality.
1: This warrior mentality, I mean, it runs even deeper than that, I would argue. And what's interesting is that this is not entirely the case in other places. That in parts of Europe, police see what they do as just one part of a broad social agenda. And while I have problems with some of what they do as well, they at least understand that there are a lot of problems beyond their purview and that where at best they can play a support role, but that if government is not funding mental health services, they're certainly not going to be able to make up the difference and that the tools they have to use are often counterproductive and endangering to those people. I wrote an op-ed in USA Today with a senior police commander in the UK where we talked about the fact that, you know, training alone is not going to be sufficient to reduce the number of people killed by police who are having a mental health crisis. That we have to rebuild a robust mental health system, and, and that's the only real solution.
0: And in the UK, there's, as you mentioned in the book, there's this there's, there's really profound cooperation between mental health services and, and the police, that trained mental health professionals are often even stationed in police. Station yeah, yeah, they use
1: mental health nurses and they they respond to calls out Mm -hmm. in the community And you know in the uk if you're having a mental health crisis You call a different number than the police and fire service you call a a a National health service number because it's a medical crisis and the police have nothing to do with it i spent some time on patrol out there and and watch these systems operate and you know, they got nurses in the jail, and nurses in the patrol cars, and more importantly, nurses responding when there's no policeman involvement at, at all, and they never kill anybody. Even when... They never yeah. kill mentally ill people. Yeah. They just even don't do it. Even when they're armed. Even, when, there aren't. even or, when they're armed. That's right. Yeah. yeah. And there's no suicide by cop. That whole concept doesn't exist there, because why would you try to commit suicide by cop when you know the cops are not gonna shoot you.
0: Fred Hampton's one of my heroes and he says, you know, that we can't simply be punitive to the punitive mechanism of the state. We have to interject something else, an alternative. And that's one of the, the things I, I really appreciated about the format of your book. You give a sort of survey of the issue and then you have a section on what reforms have been presented or have been tried, or have been suggested, and then you give a section detailing alternatives.
1: Well, that's the idea, so that I think there are a lot of people who look at policing, they see there's a problem, but their analysis of the problem is thin. And therefore, the solutions that they conceptualize are thin. They fail to get at the root of the problem. So I actually was influenced by the social geographer David Harvey in structuring the book this way. He in his first real uh, book on urban geography said, you know, I started as a kind of liberal urban geographer and I believed all these progressive things. But then as he transitions to having a more Marxist perspective he sees the fundamental contradictions and shortfalls of those seemingly progressive liberal solutions and he says this is what a real analysis of urban space should look like. So I tried to do the same thing in terms of policing. There are well-meaning people trying to fix these institutions. They're motivated generally by all the right reasons, but they're failing to grasp fundamental social forces that drive these bad procedures and i try to take take those well-meaning reforms as i find them i try to describe them in their own terms but then go further and show how we know concretely they're not ultimately going to work and then i try to look at the work that people are doing in communities around the world to produce safety, to produce security that doesn't rely on punitive state mechanisms, doesn't rely on armed police, doesn't rely on mass incarceration. And the reality is those examples are out there. And a lot of them have been tested. A lot of them really work. Others need more work, need more investigation. And we also need changes at a broader level that's gonna require a different kind of political will. But I felt like now is the time not to accept the technocratic tinkering as all we can accomplish, that now is the time to lay out what the real solution looks like. Because politically, we have a moment of crisis where the fundamental legitimacy of these institutions is being called into question. So now is not the time for small thinking. Now is the time to put out a real program, and I hope that that will inspire people.